Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. What's going on, everybody? We have a fantastic guest for you today, Forrest Galante from the Discovery Channel. You've seen him on Shark Week. You've seen him all over the place. He started out on Naked and Afraid, and then he had a show called Extinct or Alive, which I think is really, really cool, where he would look for animals thought to be extinct. We had a great conversation here today about how that work has anything to do with wildlife conservation and what his ideas of wildlife conservation are and how we can all do a better job of that. I really like that. We talk about sharks in Florida. So I love it that he was on. I think you're going to love it too. Share it with somebody that you like or know. And uh, we'll be back next week with another awesome guest just like Forrest. So here we go with Forrest Galante. I'm wildlife biologist Forrest Galante, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Forrest, what's going on, man? How are you, Tom? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm really, uh, I got to say, man, I'm a fan, and uh, I've been following you on social media. You have an incredible uh, Instagram. Really, oh, thanks, buddy. Uh, man, the, the engagement that you have with your audience is, is really impressive. It's very, very good. Um, but just all the stuff you're doing, man, it's, it's really cool. So um, I'm really excited to, to talk to you about a bunch of this stuff. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Anytime I can kick back and chat fishing with somebody who gets it, uh, it makes me happy. So I'm I'm stoked to be here, man. So, what's your story with fishing? How 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 did you become such a a, a fisherman? Uh, did that start as a young a young kid with some with a mentor, or how did you get started in fishing? Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I can actually tell you the exact moment. So my family, you know, I grew up in Southern Africa, and my family spent most of their time in the bush. And uh, I don't particularly remember this, but I've been told the story by my mother many, many times. When I was four years old, we went to Mozambique, which is where we used to take our beach vacations. And uh, we pulled up a spotted rock cod that was about 12 inches long. And apparently my eyes just went the size of saucers, and that was it. I was hooked. All I wanted to do was fish from then on. And growing up in Zimbabwe, you know, we had the Zambezi River. Uh, I, I had a dam on the farm that I, I grew up on. So I was fishing for bream for what we call tilapia here, um, tigerfish, vundu, which are giant catfish. I mean, I spent the fishing was truly my first, first love of anything wild and the pursuit of anything wild. And from as little as I can remember, I remember like, you know, our dam was pretty far from our house, but bombing down to the dam on my little motorbike or, or running all the way down there and having a bamboo fishing rod with a piece of string and a tiny little hook. And we dig for worms on the on the banks of the dam and then just catch these little bream, like little tilapia that were two inches long, skewer them and make a fire and roast them with a bit of salt. <laughs> and I mean, I've been doing fishing. Yeah, I'm still I'm fanatical about it. So, yeah, excited that's, to chat about all of it. That's awesome. You know, there's so many people that I know that um you know, fishing was was their introduction into biology or something like mm -hmm. that, and and for so many people, and myself included, uh, wasn't really that interested in school. But when I started fly fishing, and all of a sudden, I found myself being an entomologist and reading books about yeah. entomology. And my biology teacher couldn't get me to pay attention for five seconds. But the the act of fishing and knowing, man, if I know what that bug is, yep. then I can probably catch that fish. That hooked me. And it really, you know, it's it's mm -hmm. really engaging. But I wish that, you know, schools would do more of that kind of that. Well, that's that's kind of the thing is like if, if a teacher could could look at a student and say, you know what, you're going to you're going to get this if I show you this and I take yeah. you fishing and you see this, I would have been all in. But I never <laughs> made that connection in the classroom, you know, but then later and fly fishing, it's like, okay, yeah. I got to understand this and I got to understand the life cycle. And why am I not catching any fish? Because I don't know what's going on. And right. uh, you find yourself reading books and all kinds of stuff. Were you, you know, you're, you're like a, a super student. You've become a, a <laughs> wildlife biologist. Were you always that way or, or did, was it tough in the classroom at, at any point? Tom, I was a solid C minus student <laughs> through most of I barely, barely got into university. Um, so just like what you just sort of explained, my passions 
came from i'm very singularly focused it's on animals and all animals right so fishing's one element of it reptiles mammals birds you name it that's the thing i'm interested in i am a complete and utter philistine when it comes to music arts pop culture any of those things i can't play you know i can't do any of them uh you know i barely know anything about sports outside of rugby which is another big passion of mine and uh you know like i'm just i i know nothing outside of wildlife and that's that's always been the case and you know, funnily enough, like talking about in the classroom, you know, one of the hardest classes I ever took was as an undergrad, allegedly hardest classes was the biology of fishes, right? And everybody said, oh, this is a really tough upper division class. But because I was such a fanatical fisherman and free diver and spear fisherman, I walked into that lab and walked out 15 minutes later with 100% on the final exam. <laughs> and yet I could barely, barely squeak through chemistry, right? Because it had nothing to do with wildlife. And so, you know, I, I, I've always been good at the stuff that I'm passionate about and pretty useless at everything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, it's, it's, it's all about connecting and, and getting that, that breakthrough that, that leads you to studying or, or being you know, interested in something. And for me, that was sure. fishing. Sounds like for you, it was fish, certainly fishing in the outdoors. I'm interested in, um, you know, your career. I didn't realize as I was, you know, I, I said I'd followed you on social media and mm -hmm. listened to you on Joe Rogan and all that. But um, I didn't realize that you were on Naked and Afraid. <laughs> not my proudest moment but yes i was i was indeed um that was sort of the little light bulb that went off for me was doing that show because uh you know long story short i did the show we can dig into it as much as you like but when i came off of the show uh you know i had been working as a biologist for for several years and i looked at a paper that i published that got 400 reads 400 reads by like-minded scientists that already knew the subject matter. And then I looked the next day that Naked and Afraid came out and 4 million people saw me jiggling my junk naked in the jungle, right? And that's a tongue twister for you. And I was like, wow, one of these two things has the potential to reach a lot more people. And so that was the that was the very day at which I switched from traditional wildlife science to, to wildlife media. And um, it's been a good switch. <laughs> yeah, and then to your show. Um that, that you have now that and and that came from naked and afraid you know the 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 popularity that you received on naked and afraid kind of launched this new show is that how it happened or or how no did... I w I wish that were the case <laughs> that that sounds so great and so like such an easy path no so naked and afraid got completed and um the show did really well like the series right it's still going and it's umpteenth season who knows how long and I was very successful on the show. I was one of the highest rated survivalists in the show's history and blah, blah, blah. And so like everybody that does an ensemble cast show, whether it's The Bachelor or Survivor or whatever, you get your five seconds of fame in your local town. Now, I live in a town of Santa Barbara, 200,000 people. It's not a big place. And, uh, you know, the tiny little news outlets here, the Santa Barbara Independent and the, the evening news on Channel 3, whatever it's called, reached out to talk about it. And I just said, no, thanks. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, I don't really want to talk about Naked and Afraid. It's not that interesting. If you want to talk about, you know, the largest lobster that's ever been caught in the state of California, I'll show you that. I caught that last year. If you want to talk about the time I got bitten by a hammerhead 500 miles outside of its nautical known range, I'll talk about that. And then they, most of them were just like, no, thanks, click. And a couple of them were like, yeah, okay, we'll see if we can weave a story out of that. Because I was way more interested in the biology. And a few of those stories went completely viral, um, like Daily Mail, you know, all these big sensationalized things that just blew up because here is this like sort of dorky kid freaking out about a lobster getting chased around by a hammerhead on a crappy GoPro. And it was just the right sort of time and place for that kind of sensationalized media right when Daily Mail was picking up. And then I got approached by a couple different real sleazy sort of used car salesman agents that were trying to make a you know junior talent agents that were trying to make like a quick buck off of this like splashy media that had had picked up this virality that had taken place and uh they sent me pitch decks of tv shows and they're like hey do you want to do this tv show and tom i gotta tell you some these these were some of the biggest crappiest things you've ever seen i mean one of them was like a naked dating show which i think ended up happening another one was like a guy challenging a bear i don't know it was just like they were so stupid and you know like as a scholar as someone who spent a lot of time you know learning i was like these I, I saw what a TV show pitch was and what a deck was. And I was like, this isn't complicated. I can do this. So I spent three years from when Naked and Afraid came out until I got 
the very first pilot of my show, Extinct or Alive, to go forward, where I created it, I wrote all the materials, I pitched it to literally every single production company in Los Angeles and got the door slammed in my face at everyone, and then finally saved up enough money to fly out to New York, and the second production company I walked into in New York was like, all right, let's partner on this and give it a shot. Nice. Then it was another year from that until the show got made. So we spent years living on my wife's part-time teacher salary, eating a lot of top ramen, driving a broken down car. I mean, it was pretty rough. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden things started to click. I love that. I love that story. <laughs> I mean, it's got some Sylvester Stallone in it of, of knowing what you want to create. Like he wanted Rocky, right? And he gets a door yeah. slammed there. They're like, yeah, we'll make it, but not with you. Like, and he just stayed with it just like, like right. that, um, you know, we have three TV shows as well. They're all fishing shows. Uh huh. And my um, uh, story is similar to that. That I was I on that. a bunch of different fishing shows, and I thought this can't be that hard. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I was naive, and uh, it was it was much harder than I thought it was. But we we got it going. All right. Yeah. So Forrest, this is the part of the show where we're going to put you on the hot seat to get to know you just a little bit better, and also to um, to have a little fun here. We're going to Let's ask a bunch of questions. They're either or questions. You just answer as quickly as you can. Try to get through it in about a minute, and then we'll get back to um, all the other questions I want to ask you here. So are you ready to go? Let's do it. All right. Chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. One million now or 10 million later? 10 million later. Text or call? Text, always. You want to search for animals on land or in the water? In the water. Would you rather be bitten or stung? Ugh, neither. <laughs> Strangest creature that comes to mind? Um, sea pig. Sea pig. I want to learn about that here in a few minutes. Favorite <laughs> country that you visited? Ah, uh, my home country of Zimbabwe. Surf or snow ski? Surf. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Mountains or beaches? Beaches. No problem. Audio book or paper? Paper. Spring or fall? Ooh, spring. Cat or dog? Dog. Would Yuck. you have a reptile as a pet? I have about 20. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I knew that was going to be the case. Uh, would you rather swim with sharks or walk with bears? Ooh, walk with bears, only because I've done what? so much swimming with sharks. Okay. Uh, favorite holiday? Christmas, baby. It's coming. It's around the corner. Right now. Would you rather be naked or afraid? Uh, both, always. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then two two little bit more serious questions. The best piece of advice you remember being given? Uh, just my grandfather when we were stuck on a really long walk in the bush, <clears throat> and he just said to me, just never quit. Never just take the next step. Just keep taking the next step. I love best it. Best piece of advice I ever got. I love it. And then tell me something that you've changed your mind about in the last five years. Conservation. In and what can, way? I, I used to think of conservation as this grandiose, sleek, beautiful thing that people were striving and thriving at doing. And when I learned, when I really sort of got into the nitty gritty of conservation, which I've been doing my whole life, but when you really get into the politics of it, especially American conservation, you realize that conservation is a war that we have been losing since the day that it started. We might win the odd battle here and there where salmon get put back into a creek or one critter's numbers rebound, but we are losing the war of conservation every single day. More and more animals are being driven towards extinction. More and more habitat is being developed. More and rivers are being dammed. And I used to think conservation meant we were saving the world. And the cynical side of me the, re the realist in me realizes that conservation has been a losing battle since it started. And uh, it's really shifted my whole perspective to think how we can help try and turn the tides of that war. What, uh, how, how do you think that, what, what has shifted in your perspective? How do you think that we can do that more effectively? Well, two parts to that. My perspective shifted because, you know, on face value, when you think about conservation, you think about WWF or I don't want to name throw, but some of these organizations, you're like, wow, look at that. They're saving the panda. They're saving the thing. But when you put all of it together, you still see that we're losing species at a dramatic rate. We're losing habitat at a dramatic rate. You know, 80% decline in birds, 70% decline in ocean, blah, blah, blah. I'm making those numbers up. But, you know, it's um, it, it's just such a big decline. So the, the perspective shift for me came from not... Not that you shouldn't support all those groups and organizations and support the things they're doing, because you should, but it's how do we quit all this bullshit 
excuse my language, like infighting and bureaucracy and nonsense. I don't know if you know about this, but right now the whole world is giving the China back all of their pandas. Like we don't have a choice. The pa- the pandas are gone. There are no pandas left in North America. Do you know that, Tom? No. They've Why taken they them all that? back because every panda that ever left China was on loan from China. And for whatever reason, you know, there are some theories, there are some conspiracy theories, whatever. China's like, give us back all our pandas. That's great, except what happens if a disease breaks out in China, right? That's the end of all the pandas. So now all those insurance colonies that were at the San Diego Zoo and this, that, and the other place, they're gone. And so it's 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 greed, it's human greed, and this is just a micro example, but it's human greed, and it's uh, just this this <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous like system that's been developed where people that work in the sciences and in conservation in particular, they're all fighting for their next grant. They're all fighting for their next paper. They're not actually fighting for the animals because that's the system that's and how it's been designed. They're fighting to win more money, to continue their job, to maybe make a difference as opposed to everybody coming together as a hive mind, as a collective and going, how do we fight to actually fix things and stop this? I'm not. I'm like you, Tom. I'm a sportsman. I love fishing. I love diving. I love spearing stuff. I love catching my own dinner. But it doesn't mean I want it to go away, right? right. We need to be realists. And the whole like Greenpeace tree hugging that side of thing is ridiculous. And the kill everything, murder everything, God put it here for us to take it side of things is ridiculous. Like where is the common ground that all people, sportsmen, conservationists, tree huggers, whatever can come together and go how do we fix everything and that's the problem with conservation is it's all pocketed into these little things with this broken model where everybody's fighting for money everybody's fighting for their next paper or their next headline and there is no one collective means by which we can actually work on restoring and saving things yeah that's it's interesting to hear you talk about that because the infighting even just in the fishing i talk about that all the time of like man oh my god we're gonna get run over if bait fishermen and fly fishermen can't get along i mean come on man we gotta we're all fishermen but the thing about what you're talking about is like when when i see conservation misses it's like you know, the, the Greenpeace thing versus the kill everything. There's something in the middle, which is an ethical angler or an ethical hunter, right. where a lot of what you are buying is a self, there's a self-imposed tax on that that is going to wildlife conservation, officers, boat ramps, all the different things that are going on there. A lot of people don't know that. Certainly people exactly that are listening right. to this podcast, they do know that and take great pride in that. But yeah, when I see a lot should, of the, by the way. Yeah, when I see a lot of the conservation organizations or, or you know, so-called conservation organizations, it's like, wh- what what money are you putting towards this? Like, yeah. You're raising money, but how do we know that that's actually going there? And that and yeah. then with the hunting and fishing, at least there's this tax that has been put on all of our mm-hmm. equipment that is going towards, you know, it, as much as anything, just wildlife officers being yeah. out there. And then yeah. uh, that's a huge thing that a lot of people a lot of people don't really know about. But the conservation, I thought it was interesting that you you touched on that on the on on Rogan when we were talking about your work and mm-hmm. how that affects. Um, wildlife conservation, especially when you're looking for um, species that, that we've thought were extinct. And when, yeah. you, when you start doing like that, and for people that may not know you that well, that's, that's kind of your, your thing right now, extinct or alive. And that's where you go and you look for these different species. And i got a tremendous amount of questions about that, like which sure. one. Like, I don't, I, I'm just interested to know, like, when you, you, you come up with a whole list like mm-hmm. I know how to create a TV show and a and, sure. and a season, and you're going to come up with a list of ideas, and you're going to think, okay, we could go here and here and here, and you got a budget, and you're trying to figure out how you make all this work. Well, when you're when you're looking at okay, we, there there are these species that could possibly exist. Like what amount of of data, sightings, uh, rumors, video, photos? I don't know, uh, actual. You know, the last time that one of these has been seen, how much of that do you have to kind of discern and decipher through before you decide, okay, this is a pretty good target? I think we actually have a chance at maybe finding this tortoise like you did. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, just walk me through like how you decided that that was something that you wanted to to go after. And Sure. So first of all, uh, and this is where I differ from many scientists, a big part of it is just gut feeling. Right. And um, 
that's not the scientific way. That's not the scientific method, right? I, I know a lot of hunters and fishermen have a gut feeling. Well, let's go fish that bank. Let's yeah. go to check that reef, right? It's just a gut feeling. So I rely a lot on that. But outside of that, which is pretty ethereal, um, you know, there is a checklist that we go through. And the checklist is like, first of all, this didn't, this field, let me preface this by saying this, Tom, this field of looking for extinct animals didn't really exist before we started this, you know, and it's become like a big thing now. There's whole organizations dedicated to it. And it's, it's because I don't want to say it's because of what we did, but it's because we were one of several groups that were able to prove that just because some stuffy guy in a smoking jacket in an office in London said that something's extinct doesn't actually mean that it is, right? And uh, what's sad about extinction is once that label is applied, that's it. All funding dries up. All hope for the species is gone. It's lost. It's given yes. up on. So, you know, we when we when I created co-created Extinct or Alive, which isn't going any longer, by the way, we're doing various other shows, but when I... I co-created that. The idea was, hey, it's arrogant for human beings to think that they know it all and they can say, we've checked everywhere. These animals are all gone. And once we label something as extinct or lost or whatever, everybody gives up. That's the end of it. Nobody keeps going. Let's go against the grain. Let's go look for these things. And if we can prove that one or two of them are still there, that's going to... Speaking of conservation, that's going to open up all kinds of doors to the conservation of not just that species, but the habitat and so on and so forth. So it's a long winded answer. But to answer your question, before we actually set out on an expedition, you have to realize that one of these expeditions to look for these extinct animals is the culmination of years of research, months in the field and, you know, weeks of editing and things like that to bring it to bring it to fruition. And, um, you know, we go through a, a checklist where was the animal last seen? Who declared it extinct? Why was it declared extinct? Is there still sufficient habitat for it? Does it still have sufficient prey or, or food sources? Is, um, are there local sightings for it? If so, oh, look at that. Are there local sightings for it? If so, how many? Where are they coming from? Are those sightings credible or are they toothless tinfoil hat people? Uh, how remote is this area? Are people actually going in there regularly? So there's this whole lengthy checklist that we go through and my team and I, you know, we've sort of slowed down on on the is it extinct, isn't it extinct stuff because we've been doing some some sort of bigger, more grandiose conservation things. But um, we we had a list of sixteen hundred species that have been declared extinct that we thought had potential to still be there. So sixteen hundred, you think sixteen hundred possibly be alive? Correct. Wow. Sixteen hundred animals that were lost to science that we thought could still be Those out there. Those are marine so, animals and land animals, or everything. everything. Birds, bugs, frogs, lizards, fish, uh, sharks, you name it. And so, you know, we have to take this database of sixteen hundred animals, these ridiculous, horrible-looking Excel spreadsheets, and um, you know, every time we we hear of a sighting or we find something or we talk to a scientist or whatever, it changes their ranking orders. And what's funny is, like with the Fernandina Island tortoise. That animal had only been seen once. One specimen in history had been collected 114 years prior, and that was it. There was no other recent stuff, but I just had a gut feeling. I looked at satellite images. I looked at the green spaces. I spoke to um, an older scientist who'd been there some 30 years prior who said he swore to God he's a tortoise scientist. He saw, saw tortoise bite marks on the cactus, and I was like, screw it. Let's go. You know, like, that's it. Like, let's just do it. I, I, I believe it. I believe it could be there just because nobody's looking. And so sometimes it's gut instinct. Sometimes it's it's just data points and it's it's bringing it all together. That's that's wild. And then when you find something like that, that's got to be. I mean, was that the biggest thing that you found, that tortoise? Uh, well, look, we've, we've found eight animals that have been lost to science. And I think for me, because the tortoise was the first one that I literally – picked up an extinct animal you know you see it you see it here on the cover of my book there i literally picked up an extinct animal you know holding literally the rarest animal in the world one of the species that is known to exist the crown jewel of rarity and you want to talk about being a you know a sportsman a hunter or a fisherman but imagine finding literally the rarest animal on the planet and so to like dive into this bush which was way over dramatic and unnecessary but i was just that excited <laughs> and pick up this 40 pound tortoise literally the rarest creature on earth to me, and it was the first time I'd ever tangibly touched an extinct animal. Like that was, it was a whole nother level. So don't let my wife hear this, but I think it was the best moment of my whole life. Right. It was just, it was just so freaking exciting. Yeah. We've got, I think we got it. Ben pulled up a clip of you going in there right now. 
Yeah, here I am diving in the bush Dang. like it, like I'm chasing a cheetah. Now, so when you when you're thinking about this animal, there's only been one ever <laughs> caught before. Do you have any? I mean, is that what you thought it was going to look like? Is that the size you thought it was going to be? Like, what what did you? How did you identify this? Like, if there's only been one before. Like, could That's this be question. like the size of a box turtle or could it be the size of a sea turtle? Or like, how do you know what you're looking for even? So this was a female. Um, so here, the, the short of it is there's only one species on this island, on okay. Isla Fernandina. So if we found a tortoise, it had to be the Fernandina yeah. Island tortoise. Okay. Unless something really bizarre had happened, such as somebody had decided to move one over there or something. But this is a remote island in the middle of nowhere, Galapagos, you know, 600 miles out to sea. So it's very unlikely that people were just moving tortoises around for fun. <laughs> so we knew if we found a tortoise, it was likely to be the Fernandina Island tortoise. I was always hoping it was going to be a male, although it's worse for the species. The males, and and you can look this up, are called like saddleback tortoises or whatever. Um, is saddleback, is that the right term? I don't know. There's a common name for it. But basically, these giant Galapagos tortoises that get these big giraffe-like necks. So the males of that species get like that, whereas the females are a little bit more bland, generic-looking like the one you just saw. Mm -hmm. So regardless, we knew it was a Fernandina Island tortoise. She had the blue eyes, the little pig pink-like nose, the right ridging on her shell. And it was the only species of tortoise that had ever been documented on that island, the only species that could be. You know, the Galapagos is famous for having all of its uh, little pockets of evolution on these mm -hmm. different islands, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's where their Charles Darwin formulated his theory because different animals on different islands. So we knew if we found a tortoise there, it was going to be the Fernandina Island tortoise. So to see one was just, it was crazy. Yeah, it was so exciting. <laughs> that's so wild, man. I mean, I mean, just like, just in my own fishing, it's like, okay, you're looking for a world record or something like that. Right. And you're thinking, somebody comes to you and they're like, yeah, we want to book you and we want to try to catch a, you know, this fly record, you know, kingfish or something on fly. And so you look at the book and you're like, okay, well, uh, it's it, it only needs to be 12 pounds. So you're right. like, okay, well, where can I catch a 12-pound kingfish where there's not, you know, a lot of, you know, debris and everything else that are going to cut the line because it's going to be light line. And so you just kind of narrow this down and you kind of go with this gut feeling. You're like, okay, exactly. well, I'm pretty sure that you could probably do it here. Sometimes exactly. you strike out, sometimes you don't. But when you don't strike out and you actually get it, it's such an incredible accomplishment for you. You're, I mean, you're just kind of like, I knew it. Like, yep. I knew this was exactly. going to be there. And, exactly. And that's so cool that you did it with that and eight other things. So when you're, <clears throat> when like, what are you doing now with these other conservation deals? Does it have to do with rare species or? or oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Always. I, I don't think I would ever sort of walk away from critically endangered edge of extinction stuff. So I'm doing a lot of stuff. I mean, I have a bunch of shows on Discovery Channel, Shark Week specials, mm -hmm. a, a series called Mysterious Creatures, which is about mitigating human wildlife conflict, a whole bunch of different TV shows. But honestly, I've sort of lost the I don't want to come off as ungrateful or, or, or arrogant or anything else, but I've, I've lost the like desire for TV when, you know, and, and here's why, right, Tom cables dying, right? Mm -hmm. Cable television is dying. And I've been a discovery guy since I, I began. And in the beginning, it was very prestigious and it felt like you could reach gazillions of people and all of that. Now, as we all know, every single year, less and less people are watching TV. They're all tuning off. They're certainly canceling their cable subscriptions, you know, and watching TikTok and things like that. So I'm doing a couple other things. We just started a YouTube, which I'm excited yeah, about because I, was I don't have a boss that. on YouTube, right? Like I, I can just create the content that I want to create. So that's fun. There's the social media side, which I'm, I'm not very good at. I mean, I think you said something very flattering <laughs> earlier, but I don't you're, try. You're I don't know how to do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank Listen, you, man. You're pretty good at it. I'm looking at, <laughs> I'm looking at, I was looking over it this morning and there's like, I don't even know if this was your dog, but you got, you got a video on your, on your page of 27 million views taking know, a dog scuba diving, <laughs> uh, which I mean, is pretty cool. Like I've never seen a dog <laughs> scuba really dive cool. before, you know, but I mean, that's, that's insane. Uh, but you're, you're, I mean, you, for for you to say you're not good at it, I mean, I think that that might be what makes you good at it. It's like you don't think that you're good at it, but you have content that resonates with a lot of sure. people, and you're not trying to dress it up and do it some, sure. in some kind of inauthentic way. You're you're just putting out there what's there, and that's what I'm interested in about your YouTube channel. Is like, yeah, like when you look at um, the one that we shared uh, in 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 um, advance of the podcast, was you getting struck by lightning. 
right? Yeah. And that got, <laughs> that you know, on, on, on our thing, it got, I don't know, I think the last time I checked, it was like at 80,000 views, and we just put it up this morning, I think. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so people are interested in what you're doing, but what was interesting about this clip is that you got struck by lightning and you, you, you made it, but... <laughs> It's also well, like clear, you get this I, whole behind the scenes kind of thing. Like there's your sure, cameraman and sure. and it's like you're doing this you're obviously doing this pitch and and then this happens and <laughs> and, and and you're not that in this sucked. you're not really in this remote swamp. You're I mean there's no. a road right there and all that but you know and so you're seeing all this behind the scenes stuff and yep. that's what I was going to ask about your YouTube sure. like, are you going to bring in more of that kind of stuff because people love that, man. They they Definitely. love to see like what goes into doing what they like to watch you do. Maybe yeah. even more so than the than the original. De definitely. I think so, too. And that's the thing, right, uh, Tom? And I, I think it's why people have lost interest in television for the most part, which is because what you get on TV is this nice, shiny, polished picture that you decide to paint. Whereas on YouTube, I mean, that video, that clip, I was doing a Garmin commercial, right, for the, for the watch and for the thing. And I was like, I'm out here in this remote swamp, and then, bam, the water gets hit behind me, and I've got lightning shooting at my butt. But, um, you know... What's cool about YouTube is we don't have to deliver an inauthentic, shiny, polished, scored, beautiful thing. We're still going to have good production quality because that's that's what we do, but it's going to be real and raw. And if there's down moments, there's going to be down moments. And if nothing's happening, there's going to be nothing happening. We're not going to do like on all of the, the shark shows I do. You'll, you'll respect this because you do the same thing on our fishing shows. You know, we'll fish for five nights. And then finally catch the rare shark that we're after to put a tag in it. And then it gets to TV world and it's like, oh, line goes out. Tick, tick, tick. Oh, he's got yes. a bite, you know. And, and 15 seconds later, you're reeling in this thing that you've just spent five days targeting. Yeah. And I think, you know, am I going to put five days of fishing content with nothing happening on YouTube? No. But, you know, I think to show the reality of the situation, which is here are the guys sleeping on the beach waiting for a bite. All the cameras are up. It's pouring rain. Nothing's happening. I change bait 700 times and still not got a bite you know like just showing like the reality of it i think is um and not being confined by a 44 minute spot with ad yeah. breaks and act outs and all of that stuff i think it's going to be a lot of fun so i'm really excited about that it's weird i, I think i'm the first tv star in history to want to be a youtube star versus the other way around uh, right? I, I don't i don't know that you are like really i mean we have you know it's a similar kind of thing and and we have developed this whole format for the tv show and and it's it's almost like it's almost like you almost need different people yeah, like to to sure. film and edit the 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 YouTube stuff and the social media stuff but I i'm fascinated so. by it and i'm fascinated by the fact that you know you can you can have on i mean we're on the discovery channel too yeah on saturday mornings not not in the time slot that you're on but um, you can have like that audience that likes that type of content but then you can have the social media audience that likes a different type of content right and the numbers are are quite different you know like yep. like you yep. got 27 million people to watch that or or 27 million views on the the scuba diving with the dog right <laughs> right <laughs> but you're not going to get 27 million views on a full-length tv show no right? never and never. so for you like you've got a message here you're trying to further a message of conservation or or whatever it is that you're that you're you're trying to get in front of as many people as possible so it's I, I in my opinion it's not either or like sure. tv tv is still good even though it's yep. even though it's declining but streaming is going up right, right. so like right. you know that's good but then the social media and the youtube and and all of the different uh things are are still very very important um mm my, my goal is just to inspire as many people as possible to care about wildlife and conservation, right? And that, that means writing books, being on TV, going on TikTok, which I despise, but doing it, you know, <laughs> do, having YouTube videos, all these things. And so, you know, if I agree with you, it's not either or, it's doing both. But I used to think like, okay, I'm on this pedestal of television. This is the, you know, I don't need any of these other things. I only got Instagram like three years after I started doing TV because I just didn't want social media, right. you know, and now I, I like kick myself because Instagram was so much better in the beginning, right? It was, grew so much faster and people were so much more interested in it. And I wish I'd started earlier because if I had five times the amount of followers on Instagram, that's five times the audience that I could reach, not necessarily with scuba diving dogs, but with the mess, the overall message right. of, you know, hey, let's all let's all care a little bit about these animals and these things. And, and I think what's funny with my social media, 
I just put up what I like, like whatever I think's interesting, yeah. when I remember, what I feel like. Like it doesn't it all has a common thread, which is animals, because I like animals, but not there's no like big message or big picture. It's just whatever I feel like on that day or what I'm thinking of or what I'm like, hey, remember that time I did that? I'm gonna I'm gonna post that. Um and so, yeah, it's, so it seems to have most worked. of the stuff that's coming off of your uh, uh, going to, onto Instagram or something like that is that coming off like your own phone or like do yep. you have like that? That's kind of the way I do it too. It's like I'm out there, you know, during the TV show. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Take a little yep. video, and then that's kind of what ends up on the social media. But just exactly you know, lately, we've been going through the hard drives and stuff like that. Going, man, we've got like hours and hours and hours of pretty good stuff. And only 22 minutes and 30 seconds of it makes it into the show, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, we can, we can figure <laughs> out how to put some other stuff on there. Um, so I got to ask you this about um, as you're, as you're getting all these pitches and you're thinking about which way to go and you do this, you do this show that's called extinct or alive. You've got to have some of these producers saying, you know, what about urban legends and urban mm -hmm. myths and i know you get asked this all the time and i want to ask sure. it in a, the most respectful way because no, you're like a serious but you're like a serious scientist right you're not like you're just out there trying to get views or whatever but like when it comes to like and 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 i found this really interesting when you're talking to about the thylacine yeah you know and and that that could possibly, like the way that you described it, that there could possibly have gotten some that were released, and then mm -hmm. maybe that could kind of intersect with where people thought that they saw a chupacabra or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, does that make sense? Like that there is right. like this strange creature that people are apparently seeing or whatever. And does it have like a real root to a real animal that we know came through this area at some time and could have possibly been released or like where where do you draw the line on like those kind of things? Like certainly like like, uh, you know, a Yeti in the, the Himalayas, right? Yeah. Like like a very remote area where there's been a tremendous number of sightings, urban mm -hmm. legends, call it whatever you want to. Uh, even somebody like Reinhold Messner has mm -hmm. like a, a really famous climber really says, dude, I, I was, yeah, it was there. The <laughs> Yeti was there. Yeah. And how do you not believe that guy? Like he's not yeah, out there right. saying right. crazy things all the time. He came back from an expedition and was like, I don't know if I'm going back to that place. Like that was, yeah, I don't know right. what that was, but it was pretty scary. Like, where do you, where do you draw the line on something like that of, you know, you're trying, you, you, you're, you're a legit real scientist but do, where does something like that have merit i guess is where i'm what i'm asking I, I think all of it has merit right because every lore every legend every rumor is founded in some form of truth and i'll give you a perfect example if you don't mind have you ever heard of a creature called the ozark howler no Okay, so uh, this cryptid called the Ozark Howler, if you, if you Google it, you'll get all kinds of images of this werewolf-esque type creature. And the Ozark Howler is an animal that allegedly howls and terrorizes people in the high Ozarks, right? Now, you ask yourself, what, what is this creature? What is this Ozark Howler? How could there be, you know, so take a look at like maybe that second picture there, mm -hmm. right? Um, doesn't really matter. Take a look at anyone you like. But the theory around the Ozark Howler is that this creature, this demonic creature, would howl in the night and terrorize people. Well, now, if you break down, <laughs> there's me talking about one, <laughs> but if you break down the Ozark Howler and you figure out, well, when did the Ozark Howler come into existence? Where did this start? That's me with a fox. I'm not really sure why yeah. that's there, but it doesn't really <laughs> matter. But like, when did the Ozark Howler come into, come into existence? Why was this uh, pertinent? Like, what was happened? Well, you realize that the legend of the Ozark Howler popped up at the same time as prohibition well what was happening in uh in the ozarks during prohibition moonshining was happening yes. right so moonshiners were out there and they were howling and perpetuating this myth of this howler but what was it founded in why was there this howling why why was something happening is there anything that's in reality tied to this well turns out at that exact same time frame the North American red wolf, the most critically endangered wolf in the entire world, only 200 animals left in the world, of which only 12 or so are in the wild, started to go extinct, locally extinct. Well, what happens to a pack of wolves when they're trying to find other wolves or, mm -hmm. or when they're going extinct? They howl. They yeah. call for each other. They Real look call. for each other. So here you have a bunch of backwoods moonshiners hanging out in the woods, hearing these remote howls on, on at nighttime, you know, 
and they're going, oh, what's that? It must be this demonic howling creature. Then they're further perpetuating this myth to keep looky-loos and, and law enforcement out of their distilleries, out of their moonshining locations. And before you know it, you have an entire cryptid created, the Ozark Howler, mm -hmm. which is all founded in reality and truth, which is this beautiful red wolf that is getting driven towards extinction. So you have to take every single... You have to take every single one of these myths with some grain of truth and reality because it's founded in something and it's likely founded in some real animal. It's just about getting through the nonsense to figure out what is it. And, in, you know, that's why I like that example of the Ozark Howler because it's yeah. this trifecta of things that created this cryptid. But the reality is the cryptid is just this beautiful, sleek little wolf that was yeah. being driven towards extinction that was trying to find a mate. But leave that to people's imagination. And it's like, I saw it and it was 12 feet tall and it exactly. made the craziest noise. And it, yeah, exactly. it was a tree. It was a tree on right. a hill, you know, and, <laughs> exactly. and, and then they turned around and ran and then they're like, it was right there. Uh, no, and it goes, people go crazy with it, but you and know. we see what we, we see what we want to see, Tom. And I'll, I'll give you another good example if you don't mind. And I guarantee you, your listeners are going to get offended by this. And then you're going to have people <laughs> writing in telling me I'm wrong, but, but it's, it's the scientific truth. I'll tell you this. Have you ever heard of black Panthers in North America? Oh yeah. Ever seen one? Um, I have not seen a black Panther. Right. But you'll find thousands and thousands of people who tell you they have. Check this out. A panther, as you know, or a mountain lion, a cougar, a puma. There's never been a black one recorded in history. Doesn't really? exist. There is no such. Now, there are black leopards. There are black jaguars. Those are other animals. But everybody that's ever seen a black panther in North America has allegedly seen a melanistic mountain lion, puma, cougar. That doesn't exist. That animal, the puma, does not get melanism. Its coat does not turn black. Hmm. So the human mind from pop culture, like movies like Black Panther, from Black Panther mascots, from Black Panther books and reading and comics and everything else, we now see a panther in the Everglades, wherever it is, in the shadows, covered in mud, in the dark, at yes. night, whatever, and our mind tells us that it's black. Yes, 100%. because Because we're so influenced by the media around it. Now we've seen a panther. Oh, it's a black panther. It isn't. It's a beige mountain lion, but you yeah. have decided it's a black panther. And like I said, you're going to have people writing in going, this guy's full of shit. I swear to God, I saw a black panther. Well, Maybe they, you they did. They will swear, right? Yeah. Like Right, but they, it was exactly. black to them. Like what you're saying, it was saying. black to them. Exactly. And, uh, my yeah. buddy Dan Diaz just uh, just got a panther on on camera uh, mm -hmm. on his cell phone camera. And this is one of our cameramen. Like he's yeah. got really good cameras and stuff, but he just happened to have his cell phone camera, and he um, captured a uh, a panther in the Everglades yep. walking down, and it was not kind of what I thought. Like I thought the Everglades is a place where you're going to have a panther that is. Um, you know, huge and big, and they have no. so much to eat and everything. And it was the skinniest little. Yep. I mean, it was a probably an adolescent panther, uh, yep. is what what it looks like. But it was skinny and and very small. I mean, right. I, I think it was smaller than a than a Labrador Retriever. Mm -hmm. But it's about right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Still, you wouldn't want to mess with the thing. No. So God, as no. we're talking <laughs> about wolves and stuff, what do you think about um, the recent Colorado wolf uh, reintroduction? You know, I just saw the news yesterday. I think that whole thing is very interesting, the whole wolf reintroduction. They're, first of all, I think wolves should be in their historic range. I want to be clear on my standpoint on that. Not everywhere. Obviously, we don't need wolves in downtown Denver, right? Mm -hmm. But wolves should typically be in their historic range because they're a keystone species, which means they manage prey populations, which infect, which affect riparian habitats and grasslands and everything else. So wolves should be in their historic range where they were before if, and this is a big if, this is important, if the ecosystem can manage that, meaning there is enough prey sources, there is the right amount. Also, the abundance of wolves needs to be regulated, right? You can't just put 500 wolves in and go, perfect, we fixed it. Hmm. No, because now you're going to have a predator-prey equation where you're going to crash the ungulate population, the elk and deer population, blah, 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 right? So... It's just a delicate balance where everything needs to be managed. I just read about the Colorado wolf reintroduction. Something I read said that it's the, you know, it's a subspecies or it's not a gray wolf, blah, blah, blah. I need to look more closely into that. So I don't want to comment on that because hmm. I, I'm not sure what the correct subspecies. I haven't subspecies. read that part. Yeah. So I saw the yeah, picture yeah. of the first one going out and it was black and it looked big. It like a wolf I've seen in Yellowstone. I mean, it, yep. it looked, it looked like a real wolf. I don't know, a subspecies or whatever. It looked big. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of controversy there. But at a least lot. they have um, something to 
to go on with the reintroduction of the wolves in Yellowstone. Um, right. You know, like how long did it take for them to reach a certain density? And mm-hmm. how many how many are in a pack? And how many packs are there now? And there's some right. of the most interesting animals. Some of those books um, that have been written about the wolves in Yellowstone are so cool, man. These people will mm-hmm. just watch them and watch them and watch them and 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 with the radio and then they'll take the the radio collar information that's available and they'll they'll know that this one went over to the other yep. uh, uh, pack and then the challenged this and and there are these wolves wolf books that are written about the wolves in Yellowstone that um it's like a soap opera right like of of things that are going on and the way that this one wolf challenges the other ones and and this particular wolf like always eats last and makes sure that you know they make the kill but then they always eat last and people mm-hmm. are observing this for years and it's fascinating it's fascinating like mm-hmm. the communication that the wolves have and and all that so i like wolves as a species i don't know i know that ranchers don't particularly like them yeah. um and that's where some of the controversy or a tremendous amount of this controversy is coming in colorado but you know, in Yellowstone or in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, you have this Yellowstone, yep. where this is the largest national park that we have. Okay, are they going to get out of there? Probably. That's what everybody said, and they did. But you know, there's a tremendous amount of of habitat and and uh, land for them to be in that is a national park. In Colorado, don't know. Don't yep. know what that's going to look like. Yep. Well, it, it goes back to, it's similar. First of all, we fear what we don't know. That's a human instinct, right? These ranchers, these hunters, the everybody, everybody that hates the wolves, and on both sides of the coin, by the way, but everybody that's really anti-wolf reintroduction doesn't know them. They're scared of them because they don't know them. They think they do. They've read about them. They, they know they're going to kill their elk. They know they're going to kill their, their sheep on their farm, their cattle, whatever. You don't actually know them. So you're scared of them because of their legend and their rumor. You don't know them. And the truth is we live in a time and place in this on this planet where every bit of wildlife has to be managed now, especially in North America, not globally, but in North America. So we have to manage how many wolves are going in, what areas they're going into, how that's going to affect things. We might have overpopulations of wolves, in which case we'll have to shoot some and bring them down. We might have uh, underpopulations, in which case we're going to need to add more. We need to do our very best as docents of this planet to balance these ecosystems. Just because you love shooting mule deer or whatever, whitetail deer, and you can go out in you know some of these Midwestern states and see hundreds or thousands of deer, that's awesome, but that doesn't mean that it's a good balance for the ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. creating its own set of problems. I get that hunters love it. I get that hunters are there to, to bring those deer numbers down and all of that, but there's still problems in that ecosystem, right? And bringing in a keystone species, which means an animal that can actually have a cascading effect through the food chain, that's what's going to regulate those problems. And it's the same thing with the thylacine, right? The thylacine, uh, you mentioned that very briefly. For those that don't know, it's a Tasmanian tiger, also known as a Tasmanian wolf. It's a marsupial carnivore. Imagine a cross between a kangaroo and a wolf and a tiger. It's a weird, weird, super cool animal. We drove it to extinction in Tasmania because of our fear of it destroying sheep farming. Reality was it likely had very, very limited impact on any sheep farming whatsoever. But since the Tasmanian tiger, this beautiful animal you're seeing here, was driven to extinction, there's now no apex predator left in Tasmania. So if you go drive down the road in Tasmania, Tom, you've never seen anything like it. There is roadkill every 15 feet. It is just littered with dead wallabies, dead wombats, dead animals, because those middle species have exploded without a predator there to uh to regulate them now why is that a problem it's a problem for a bunch of reasons one it drives all of the vegetation down right it destroys crops it destroys native grasses and bushes and shrubs but two there's major diseases breaking out and and, you know if you look up a picture of facial tumor disease in tasmanian devils or mange in um in wombats it's crazy and it's a rampant in these places because if you had thylacine in the ecosystem every mangy uh wombat would be killed and eaten immediately and the mange wouldn't spread but because you don't have 
an apex predator to take out the weak, the disease just spreads and spreads and spreads and becomes rampant. And that affects the health of everything, every animal in the ecosystem, every plant, every leaf, every human living there is now exposed to these diseases because you don't have a keystone species that's able to regulate that ecosystem. So it's so important to have these bioregulators, to have these creatures that are in, that are doing their job in an ecosystem. And that's all, when it comes to wolf, when it comes to predators, when it comes to thylacine, any of it, you just have to realize it's just a balance right it's not about hating wolves and loving deer it's not about any of that i guarantee you the same people wouldn't care if you were talking about adding more elk to the population right but (laughs) it's 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 just realizing that it's a balance and that's all it's about you can still hunt you can still fish you can go and enjoy the wildlife we just have to keep things balanced so that it doesn't get so out of whack that the whole system crashes you know the people that seem to know the most about the balance are the people that are out there the most which are the hunters and fishermen no question even more so than a lot of the biologists that no question you have to do your paperwork and stuff like that the hunters are they're just out there all the time so with the with the uh, discussion of balance, what about the balance of sharks in Florida? Do you have an opinion on that? I do, yeah, I do, and and it's I wouldn't say it's an unpopular opinion, but it might not it might go against the grain a little bit. Look, shark populations are down globally by like eighty percent, right? And, and you can fact check that it's something around there, but it's the global decline is massive. What you have in Florida, yes, the sharks have come back a little bit, not overall, you know, not like, wow, they're, they're at 300% capacity. But what you have in Florida is sharks that have been conditioned to go to fishing and diving areas that are looking for something to eat. And the reason being there's, there's shark diving operations that feed them. Sharks know the sound of a boat. They know the sound of a fish on a line. They know the sound of a, of a spear gun firing. And so all these fishing hotspots and all these zones where fishermen love to go and fish are full of sharks, right? Which makes sense. It doesn't mean that shark populations are great and we should call sharks and, you know, there's good, more sharks than ever and we need to manage it. What it means is we have conditioned these sharks to be around people to look for food because we've for so long now been feeding them, even if it's inadvertently. And so what's kind of sad is, and I've seen it myself, by the way, I'll jump in on the Jupiter ledge to go shoot a cobia and there's 300 bull sharks around. I'm like, holy shit, this is scary. I wish there were less sharks here, right? Like I've, I've been there myself, but the reason they're there is because me and every other Yahoo with a spear gun has jumped in there to try and shoot a cobia. And they know that that means the dinner bell is being rung. So, you know, what we really need to do is figure out how to either spread out the fishing pressure or mitigate the issue where sharks are taking bycatch, you know, from fishermen, taking catch from fishermen, as opposed to like, there's too many sharks, we need to kill the sharks. That's not the right management. The right management is figuring out how to live more in harmony and in balance with all of these creatures, as opposed to we need to call them, we need to kill them, you know, it's the wrong number. Because the statistics back that up, which, as I said, we see just this global decline of this massive number. So it's just more about balancing everything. And I'm on this fisherman side, by the way. I I hate having my fish stolen. I hate getting in the water and being chased out by sharks. It sucks. But the, the, the resolution is figuring out how to mitigate that, not killing sharks. Yeah. Well, I don't um, disagree that sharks are very uh, intelligent and that they can uh, discern the, the, the sound of a spear gun or the sound of a a fish on the line and come to that. But I can take you to some places where there's just sharks everywhere, and we're not sure. even fishing. Like, I mean, sure. there's so many, and like you go to Flamingo or something, and you get up on the flat, mm-hmm. and where we used to see, you know, eight or ten, you see four hundred. Yeah, that's it's, crazy. I mean, it's it's a number, and maybe I'm exaggerating, or maybe I'm 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 under exaggerating, but it's like it's so many more that nobody that I know has ever seen that many. And and this is where, and Tom, I'll be the first to admit, I'm sitting here in my office in California, basing what I'm saying on papers that I've read and statistics, and you're the observational fisherman. You're the person who's been there on the flats. And honestly, I think both points are valid, but you're the one who's actually out there seeing it. I'll be the first person to sit down and say, I'm sorry, you're probably right. Let's go take a look at it. So maybe on those specific flats, maybe in those specific areas, you are right. Maybe those sharks have become overpopulated in small in small locations, but it goes back to the war versus the battle. Sharks are down globally. Yeah. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So how do you manage that? You don't want to kill sharks from one place that has too many 
just because, you know, when you know there are other places that don't have enough because you know those sharks will spread out, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you balance that? I don't have the answer. I don't know the answer to that. But I I completely believe you when you say there are flats that didn't used to have sharks that have tons of sharks. There's a beach out this window that you can't see that for the first 15 years I lived in Santa Barbara, California, nobody had ever seen a great white shark. I can go there right now with a drone and find five. And it's been like that for the last six, seven years. And I don't know where they've come from. I don't know why. I know they're there to eat stingrays. It's a nursery. They're juveniles. Where the hell have these white sharks come from? Look at white shark statistics. Their numbers are down globally. No question. I could show you six of them where there didn't used to be any, you know? I don't know why. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's interesting about being able to just go there and see them anytime. But then you have other things like uh, the the O-Search people and all the other people that are tagging sharks. We've had had a guy uh, in uh, South Carolina. uh, He tags great whites and Mm -hmm. has a permit to do it and all that. And he, he catches them regularly. And uh, and and then you can follow the track of where they are. Yeah. And these are places where, if you know, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you had said, no, this is a place where great whites are, even the Florida Keys. Like, yeah. uh, people are like, nah, man, you never seen a great white here. I've right. never seen a great white. There's right. not, but but, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. Of it. Well, yeah. Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And that was the that's the transition is like is, um, you know, you have everybody's got a phone in their pocket. Everybody's mm-hmm. got a GoPro. Uh, sport fishing has a you know sport fishermen have got cameras going off the back. You can see all of this stuff that that we weren't able to see before, and right. all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're you're catching something. Something big comes up and bites it. You, you just saw something big and dark. You're like, I don't know. It's big. I don't know what caught it. Right. But now it's like, well, I've looked at the O search research, and 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 great whites come right through here. And then you can go back and look at the camera, and you're saying. Yeah, that was a great white. And so then people are like, yeah, we have great whites here. But what I think is going on with the with the sharks in Florida, and this is total bro science. Sure. But I think that there could be very likely, just like you see in other species, there could be a global decline, but in certain areas there could be a, an explosion. And how awesome is that, Tom? That means we've managed that ecosystem well enough that right. the apex predators are able to survive. I wish, I wish the whole world could learn from that. Sure. Because right? that's fucking awesome, man. Right, like, that's man. the greatest thing ever. I'm not saying you're wrong. Maybe we do have too many sharks in Florida. That's because we've done such a good job managing the resources overall that those sharks are able to thrive. And that is incredible. I mm-hmm. wish we could do that more globally. But I think that a lot of people aren't... Um, <clears throat> or they don't want to probably is the right thing. They don't want to believe that in certain areas there could be an explosion and there could be, uh, uh, the the species could be thriving because like what you're talking about, about all this infighting and everything else, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of the people that are are, uh, shark uh, advocates. Sure. They're kind of making a living being a shark advocate. And the fact that the global numbers are down benefits their social media, benefits their views, it benefits their foundation or whatever they've got. And so to admit that, well, in this area, there's an explosion means that, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe a lot of what they've been preaching isn't necessarily correct. But I think that it's like you need to be able to, or it's great when you're mature enough or, or, or thoughtful enough to think, well, you know, it happens with turkeys and deer and other things that you could have, you know, uh, there are areas where we have none. And then there are exactly areas right. where there's way, way too many. Exactly so right. if it can happen there, why can't it happen in the ocean? But, I mean, if you talk to any fisherman that's out there or guide or whatever, captain, it's like, dude, call it whatever you want. But there right. are a lot of sharks here. And again, it comes down to that middle ground. And you're right, by the way, Tom, like that is the problem. Human greed just clouds our judgment, right? If I'm writing a paper on shark explosions and I go, hey, there's two, there's way, there's enough sharks. Let's not worry about it. I am now not funded to do another project on sharks, right? And that's, that's the broken model that we were talking about at the top of the show. But, um, you know, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that's where there needs to be a middle ground where everybody, and it's, I don't, I don't have the solution, by the way. I'm a guy who makes TV shows on animals. but (laughs) Me too. (laughs) uh, Yeah. (laughs) But I think that I wish there was a little bit more neutrality in on both sides where it's like, okay, there are a ton of sharks here, but there aren't any sharks here. Like, well, how do we fix this? How do we make this balance so that there's the right number in Florida, but there's also the right number in Cuba or whatever, right? I'm making that location up. But so, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I think that just 
constant study and research and being a little bit more neutral is going to give us those answers. And also taking information from observational scientists like yourself is incredibly important. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I think that it's also important that that uh, it, when you're in a position like you or me or any of these scientists, you're not necessarily trying to be right. Like, I don't right. want to necessarily be right. I just want to present the observations, right? And And just... Just be able to understand that there could be too many here and not enough here, and maybe there's something that we can do about it, or maybe there's right. not. But right. Maybe that's just just being able to accept that observation that yeah, they're doing fine over there, they're not doing fine over here. That's exactly okay. right. So the, the exactly work needs right. to go over here, right? So uh, I know we're running out of time, but I want to get to um, your spear fishing just quickly. Sure. Your six time six time world uh six world records i guess yeah. is that what that means so yeah. what are your what are your world records on spear oh man i gotta think about it so uh yeah so they're all on pulse spear so i love oh, cool. the primitive stuff yeah, right yeah. I, I love primitive primitive uh fishing hunting survival all of that so it's all on pulse spear all done with gaku pulse spears and um let's see i have or had i don't know which are still standing i'd have to check iusa yeah, yeah. standings but white sea bass which is like the gold, gold standard for spear fishermen in Southern where, California. Where, in Southern California, that's where you got yeah, them? Yeah, okay. we call them the gray ghosts. They're beautiful, beautiful fish, amazing animals. Um, so white sea bass, the yellowtail, which are our two big yeah. game fish. I, I had or have both of those. Uh, the spectacled flounder, which I shot in Panama, which was totally bizarre, but we just found this bed full of giant flounder. <laughs> um, the humphead, which is a fish from the Sea of Cortez in Baja. The Malabar grouper. Um, shoot, what's the sixth one? Oh, Cabrilla, spotted or leopard grouper from the Sea of Cortez okay. as well. So those are the six world records that at one point in time I had. And you know how nice. this works, Tom. You've oh, been yeah, doing yeah. it a long time. So, you know, go down, you're hunt like I've got a pole spear. I'm hunting for whatever the best, biggest fish I can find to eat is. And, you know, I'm always chasing this dream of getting the biggest one ever taken with a pole spear. And uh by some miracle I managed to do it six times. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Do you have do you have some species that are like on your on your life list that you would love to have a chance to go after or get something really big? If that, what what would it be for you? Yeah, good question. I mean, I I'd love to get a big dog tooth tuna. Yeah, I've never I, gotten. I, you a know, big I knew dog you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know uh, Cam Kirkconnell? Oh yeah, I know him? Cam. Yeah. I mean, he uh -huh. he's he has got some incredible records. He's another just, level of yeah, spear he's, fisherman. He's really yeah. he's really good. I, I've had him on the show before. He's, oh, he's cool. fantastic. But he does so much with his pole spear too. Like, yes, so yep. much. But that dog tooth tuna. I mean, I I'll be happy to try to spear one. I'm not that level of a spear fisherman to do that, but I certainly can catch one from a, on top of the water. And yeah, I would. That's 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 one that is on my list for sure. The dog tooth tuna. It's so cool. It should be on every fisherman spear fisherman's list because it's just it's this weird fusion between a mackerel and a tuna with this like shark-like mouth and this unbelievable power and this crazy feeding response and they like to stay deep i mean they just like check all the cool boxes basically yeah, yeah, yeah there's man. such wicked fish i've got a few small ones in papua new guinea when we were there uh two years last year two years ago yeah and uh but and I saw a 200 pounder that I, uh, it just destroyed all my gear. <laughs> you know, the, uh, New Guinea trip is one that I've wanted to go on. I, I went to Australia and we fished in the, in the Car Carpentaria region. So mm -hmm. it's, it's Gulf like the of Florida. Carpentaria. Yeah. It's like yeah. the Florida Keys. It kind of comes up to the north of like that. Mm -hmm. And then, then New Guinea's just across the ocean right there. But, um, they have that New Guinea bass over there, which is basically this giant snapper. Yeah, the black oh bass, right? God, so they call those it, things yeah. are like you take our our closest thing would be like a kubera, mm -hmm. um, but the New Guinea bass is like I remember Lefty Cray uh, went to one of his presentations and he was just like. Man, you just got to take your take your reel. You got a star drag on your reel, and then crank it down, and then get a pair of pliers, and then crank it as far as you possibly can <laughs> with a pair of pliers, and then good luck trying to land the thing. And I was like, they couldn't be that tough, you know. But then, you know, if you catch a big kubera or something like that, it's like they if okay, a fish twice this size, five times this size, right. yes, it could be that tough. Right, it could be that tough, and they could They're be just all muscle. That but that New Guinea. What did you think about New Guinea? Quickly. Man, Tom, it's a crazy place. In in the few weeks we were there, we saw two 
two groups of machete fights break out where people Whoa. were hacked. Uh, we got, yeah, we, we went deep into the jungle to find this tribe to talk to them about shark lore, and they told us outright that they were still active cannibals, even though everything you read online says there's no such thing as active cannibalism anymore. I've heard that, man. Um, I've heard yeah. that. Like, when you're, when I'm tr planning this trip, I'm like, I'd love to go see New Guinea bass, and, you know, some of my friends that are pretty well-traveled, they're like, be careful. You know where yeah. they live, right? Like, yeah. they're, they're back there. You might not come back. And, and they're it, serious. You know, at least from the group that we encountered, like they weren't like, okay, we're going to eat you. It was just like having conversation and talking. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a thing we still practice. You know, we, we go to war with the other tribes and it's part of, part of our culture. It's like, respect you know please don't eat me um so yeah i mean it's it's amazing but i love papua new guinea i i love all these places that are just sort of wild and free and lawless and you know it, it's got that romantic element to it just being able to do anything you can think of and papua new guinea is one of those places baja mexico is like that where it's just north of sort of the east cape it's all just lawless and wild and you can kind of do anything you can think of and uh papua is like that too and it's i loved it i absolutely loved it i wouldn't take my wife and kids there but to go back for an expedition or an adventure to look for the thylacine which is on my list in western papua i mean count me in I, i'd go anytime catch catch a big bass yes please yeah that sounds awesome man so uh what about this year where can people find you this year as we're bringing this to a close what how can people support what you're doing or or follow you or or get on the YouTube channel what how do we yeah. uh, follow That'd learn be great. more about you yeah, I got a couple big headliner shows coming up on Discovery towards uh, early summer that I'll be excited to talk about when I'm allowed to. Um, and, uh, you know, other than that, the YouTube is great. I'm having a lot of fun with that. That's where I've been putting most of my media generation into for the last few months and intend to continue that. And I have all the regular social channels. You know, Instagram's by far the one I'm the most active on, but I've got the TikTok and whatever Twitter is now and all of that. So, yeah, I'm I'm there. I'm doing it. You know, we're, we're staying wired in as much as we can <laughs> that's awesome man well i've really enjoyed this and uh open invitation for you to come back i feel like we barely scratched the surface i had so many uh things i want to talk to you about and we've probably got some friends in common but um for yeah, sure you're uh you're 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 doing it man you're out there you're, you're just living an incredible life and you're you're um you're you're staying true to your mission of of wildlife conservation so it's super cool and you've got a different approach to it which i think is 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 good and fresh and needed uh, Thanks, Tom. Stopping the infighting. Like, if, yeah. if if there was anything that we talked about that I could get behind the most, is it's that because the people Good. that love animals, whether you're a hunter or a fisherman or a bird watcher or right. somebody that would never kill something, we all are exactly. after the same thing. We want habitat. We want these species to thrive. And I would love it if you could be the wizard that came up with a way <laughs> that that we don't infight anymore and we all work towards the same goal of preserving wildlife and habitat. And that's what we're all after, man. Absolutely. Like, you know, so good luck. <laughs> it's, Tom, a, it's a tough challenge. Man. It's a Thank tough challenge, Thank you so much, man, dude. But, I I agree. And I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Sorry, I don't mean to talk over you. I just thank you so much for saying that. That's really exciting. Yeah, well, it's I'm, I'm all about it. And, and you know, it's something that we all strive towards is like trying to figure out how we accomplish the goals that we're trying to accomplish. And 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 a lot of times that doesn't that means not alienating other people like we have this right. one little thing just real quick. We have this this uh uh, water issue in Florida, right? Like mm -hmm. the, 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 you probably are very aware of it. Some people aren't, but the Lake Okeechobee and it, it creates all kinds of problems and you're getting, um, no water coming into the Everglades and yep. lots of fresh water going out where it shouldn't go and lots of fertilizer. And we have this group called captains for clean water and they have done the best job in my opinion, because they were like, well, it's not just a fishing problem. Like this right. is a real estate problem and people that own restaurants and people that, you know, the airlines and people that want to come down to Florida. Like if the beaches are full of dead fish and they stink, nobody's coming. Exactly. Right? So it's not a problem that we that fishermen alienate everyone else. It's right. like, no, let's let's all get together and realize that there is a solution to this and we can do something about it. And that's super right. cool to me. So I, I see what you're trying to do on a much larger scale than that. And also greater challenge, but you know, you're the man, you can do it. 
<laughs> Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on, and I already look forward to the next one. Yeah, we'll do it, man. Thanks, Forrest. I appreciate it. Everybody go follow him. He's got an incredible Instagram, and his YouTube channel is going to be cranking for sure with behind-the-scenes stuff. You can see him get bit and stung on your YouTube channel, I'm sure. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Forrest. I appreciate it. We'll see you. Take care.